Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series, featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag #FashionCulture. My name is Tania Melendez Escalante, and I am Senior Curator of Education and Public Programs at the Museum at FIT. Welcome to the Museum at FIT's Fashion Culture Program Series. We are honored to welcome model Veronica Webb, who's a great friend of our museum, and Rory Tahari, the CEO and founder of State of Mind Partners. They're going to have a panel discussion on the future of fashion and the impact of digital technology. Their conversation will be moderated by our own Emma McClendon, Associate Curator of Costume at, at the Museum at FIT, and she was a curator of the exhibition Fashion and Technology. Okay, so first off, thank you guys both for being here. I mean, you both have had such dynamic careers on two different sides of the industry. You know, Veronica, such an influential supermodel, and Rory, the work that you've done as a creative director and behind the scenes and your knowledge of manufacturing and retail and everything, I think it's gonna be great to get your insight on where we're going. So I know that both of you have had sort of a recent transition, in a sense, sort of starting out with blogging and influencing, like you're doing, Veronica, and then with the State of Mind consultancy group and thinking about branding. So these are, in a sense, a digital turn for you guys. So I was wondering if you guys could both say a bit more about these different projects that you're embarking on and sort of what led you to go in this new technological direction? Well, I was always a fashion person. Um, from, the from the very first thing I can remember is my mother making clothes for me. And ever since I was three years old, I have understood the power of fashion to make you feel like you're powerful, that you're beautiful and that you belong and that you can own a situation. And then that love of clothing grew to me going, um, coming to New York, going to art school for a bit, then leaving, becoming a model. And the part for me that was the most exciting was being able to interpret a designer's vision in the physical world. And that was kind of the first taste I got of really um, self-publishing and self-editing. Um, and so years go by, you get to be a supermodel, lucky me. Um, you get to wear the most beautiful clothes in the world and learn a lot about technique and marketing. And the better you get at what you do, the less use there is for you as a model because although we've seen huge waves and change in the industry in terms of size, shape, color, preference, orientation, um, differences, ageism is still a thing. So four years ago, before uh, inclusion and diversity were the biggest words ever, I was kind of dead in the water because I was 50 years old. And I started to publish a blog because I still have so much to say about fashion. I shouldn't say I still have so much to say. I have even more to say about fashion now, having spent my lifetime worshiping it and experiencing it and you know, just loving the power of beauty. So. Through my blog, I talk about fashion for women who are of any age, really, because it's about owning, owning, owning your age, owning your beauty, and owning your power. 
And I find that this is one of the most exciting sort of um, periods in fashion because so many people have a voice and we see so many points of view. So um, without technology, it wouldn't be possible. Without the internet, it wouldn't be possible. Good, bad, or indifferent, the internet lets everybody vote on what's beautiful and what's fashionable. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you said it very eloquently, um, what, what's, what's happened um, and, and where you want to go. I, I can you know, speak for myself, um, in, in terms of the last 20 years of fashion, things have changed incredibly. And we're in a massive state of disruption right now. And there isn't anyone who, in the fashion industry who isn't touched by it. And uh, you, know, you were right in front of the cameras and, and, and experiencing the industry in that way. Um, I'm, I'm behind the scenes and seeing how the business of fashion is, is, is running. And it's something like nobody has ever seen. And, and businesses, whether they're big or small, um, are having trouble. And um, I just felt it was time for a change. And I looked around and I thought, you know, what, what's, gonna, what's gonna be important going forward? Well, you have to have a great product. If you don't have a great product, if you don't make something that's amazing, then nobody's gonna buy it. So I'm gonna go into the assumption, that's a given. So what will set any company apart besides its great product? It's branding. Everything is branding now. And one of the things Veronica and I were speaking about uh, earlier um, when we first started talking about doing this event together, we were talking about what matters today, authenticity, accessibility. And I saw myself living in an authentic way. And I understand branding. And that is how I came up with the idea for State of Mind Partners. This is really what I understand and specialize in. And today, everybody says, oh, I can do your PR, I can do your marketing, and I can do your branding. There are thousands of companies who are like that. But the truth is, is branding is a specialty. You wouldn't go to your uh, general physician for uh, brain surgery. And I put branding under the, maybe not brain surgery, <laughs> but it's, it's a specialty. And that's, that's really what I understand. So um, that, that's how I came up with State of Mind Partners. That's great. I mean, I, I love what you said about disruption. I think that's so true that right now, in so many ways, it's a period of disruption. What for you both has been a key technological change in the last decade that you felt has really disrupted, or even 10, 20 years that you feel has had, in a sense, the most impact? The fact that you can run the world from the <laughs> palm of your hand. Mm. And I kind of got that idea because, like, one day my kids came home and I'm like, well, where's your books? Where's your homework? And they're like, we did it. And I'm like, well, I don't see anything. And they all hold up their phones. They're like, Google Classroom, Ma. And I was like, wait a minute. So, like, I'm spending every penny I have to send them to school, and they're doing everything on their phone, so this is telling me something. I better get with it. I better start running my life and my business and educating myself and educating consumers about me through this phone. 
Well, wow, <laughs> technology. I don't even know really where to begin. Um, for the fashion world, I think a lot of people would argue um, Instagram. Mm. And, mm -hmm. you know, there are no more fashion magazines. Everybody's consuming all their fashion through uh, Instagram, which has created a $1.6 billion influencer economy. Mm. I mean, that's kind of staggering. But, you know, I would say in terms of like real technology, I would say data. Data mm. is something, you know, I talk a lot about and um, data is something that almost killed the entire fashion industry. Mm. Uh, department stores were using data and as a way to figure out what they were going to buy for the stores. And um, when, you know, we were coming up through the industry, there were still merchants, people who had an idea of what they thought they wanted to buy for the store. And, you know, these people aren't around anymore, like Gene Pressman, the founder of Barney's. Cal Rutten's Gene. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Genius. Yeah. And um, so, you know, data really, you know, the computer and and the the people having the ability to use a computer instead of following their their heart and their soul about what fashion really is, um, you know, really truly changed our industry. Mm. I also think one of the biggest disruptions too is the amount of fashion that people are that can consume, not only mm. visually, but the fact that fast fashion has made everything so incredibly cheap and so incredibly quick. And I think it's kind of taken the real value out of fashion in a way because I feel like true style is is that you get something that you love and you wear it to death in a million different ways. Mm -hmm. But that's not really the mentality anymore. The thing that I'm seeing more and more is get as much as you can, as quick as you can, and do as little with it as you can to show that you have so much. It's like the worst algebraic equation I've ever seen. <laughs> well, I, I, call, I call it the I want it now culture. Um, you know, Veronica, uh, Veronica Salt from Willy Wonka's factory. I oh, want Veruca it. Salt. Veruca Salt. Veruca Salt. Salt. <laughs> I want it now. I want it now, Daddy. Uh, you know, everybody wants it now. And uh, when you talk about everybody, you know, fast fashion and, and how that's that's infiltrated uh, the mindset of the consumer, there were 100 billion garments produced last year. 100 billion. So there are 7.5 billion people on the planet, and 75% of them can't even afford to buy any of that 100 billion that was produced. So if you do the math, if let's just assume everyone could buy, that would be seven and a half garments per person new every single year. So compared to 15 years ago, we're consuming 60% more clothing than we used to buy. And it's not sustainable. And you also told me a staggering statistic, Rory, about the amount of clothes that are destroyed every mm. day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, last year there was news that came out that Burberry had burned something like $38 million of unsold merchandise. Mm -hmm. And everybody was shocked. And sadly, everyone in the industry, the fashion industry, wasn't. Uh, this this uh, burning has is going on everywhere. Every high-end luxury fashion house burns. And then, of course, you know that that's really a misdemeanor. The real felony was H and M. It came out that they burned. Are you ready for this? 
4.3 billion dollars last year of merchandise that nobody bought, wasn't good, defective. It's so bad that France passed a law by 2023, nobody can uh, burn unsold goods anymore. They'll have to either reuse, resell. And for me, the saddest part about that is, I know that all that means is the companies will just move their goods to another country so they can burn them. So there's burning on the one hand, and then I learned something the other day that I'm now going to wear my leggings until they literally are too obscene to wear <laughs> in the gym, that a third of the plastic fiber that's in, mm. the, in, the, in the, what do you call it, the, the plastic reef in, in the um, Pacific is from the microfibers in our clothes. Mm. When, when, when we dispose our clothes. So like everything you have that stretch, eventually it has to go somewhere and it's ending up in the ocean. It's not sustainable. And people are also buying their clothes in completely different ways too. The disruption to retail, I think, with technology is colossal. You know, not just e-commerce, but also renting, resale. You know, I know you've talked about sort of some of these and, and and Ellie Tahari was an early adopter of e-commerce, too. Is that correct? Yeah. You know, Ellie and I, uh, Ellie, who's actually here today in the front row, um, he's celebrating his 48th year in business. Congratulations. That's um, forever in fashion. Um, he, you know, even though he's never turned on a computer, um, doesn't type, uh, he, his brain uh, always sort of uh, was very, I would say, technologically advanced for someone who wasn't, you know, is, is a technophobe completely. And we were talking a, 20 years ago about, you know, selling on the internet and when it first started, and everybody said to us, that's crazy, you're going to go out of business. And, um, you know, he's a rebel, never cared. <laughs> he said, let's do it anyway. And we launched our first e-commerce site in 2001, which, I mean, is 18 years ago. And uh, it, was, it was an instant success. Everybody wanted to buy online. Um, of course, we had no idea what we were doing, and uh, people were emailing their orders, and no one was checking email back then. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but you learn as you go, and... Um, yeah, and here we are, everybody's buying online now and soon everybody's gonna be shopping on their phone. Um, although today the statistics are most people really buy the majority of their purchases on the computer, uh, I think we're, you know, this, you know, the statistics are there that we're moving closer and closer towards um, just buying everything on your phone. Just most websites aren't designed for that yet. I'm 90% of the way there, I have to say. <laughs> Groceries, food, everything. But um, one of the things also, Rory, I want, I want you to talk about too, is you talked to me about the last mile and how yeah. it's changed how we get retail into our hands, but also the impact on the environment. Um, to get to your point about the last mile, um, so I speak a lot about this, and I call this the vicious cycle of fashion. Mm. So. Most fashion companies are trying to achieve low-cost labor. 
and which we know leads to overseas manufacturing, which we can get into a little bit later, uh, a little more detail about that, because I have some things to say about that, which leads to long product cycles. So um, the, the average time to design clothing um, for Zara is six weeks, but traditionally it would take us anywhere from six to nine months. And then uh, that leads to speculative manufacturing. What does that mean? That means we have to guess how much we're gonna make before we make it. Uh, this leads to liquidation, sales, and disposal. So that means burning clothing, which is awful. No price control leads to brand erosion. A lot of the luxury uh, designers don't want to see their 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 clothes in discount channels. Um, then we have low margins, minimal profit, no innovation investment, and this circle continues. This is not sustainable. So what Veronica is talking about is the last mile. So here we are with just the production part of the problem in terms of sustainability for fashion and where the future is going. Let's think about the last mile. Okay, so you're gonna have to tell me if I get this right. The last mile is you are buying something on Amazon. The clothing has to get to you. How much fuel is used? How much packaging? cardboard, plastic, returns. Do you know how much was returned in the US last year? I always look at the size chart, so don't look at me. I'm not responsible for all those returns. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm very guilty. $369 billion of merchandise was returned in the last, last year in the US alone. So let's say we're gonna find a way to even manufacture the items back in the US, here, on demand, which we can talk more about. I, I'm a big believer in on demand. What about the last mile? This is a problem, and we're all part of the problem. Not just the designers, not just the manufacturers, but also us as consumers. So, this is the world we're leaving for our children, and we gotta think about it. Yeah, I mean, I was gonna say with, with the blog, I know that you, this idea of your goals and sort of education and awareness of a lot goes into that. I mean, it's really important to me that people like reuse, restyle, mm. remix your clothes. Um, I try to you know, tell people, have an, a, a real emotional attachment to something that you buy, then that's something that I really learned through my mother. Like, you know, it's three generations later and we're still passing down baby clothes that my mom made. Um, and that really means something. And when I buy something, I try to think about it. And I love the story of where something came from, like who made it and why did they make it and why should I wear it? And why do I want to be part of this story? And I feel like, the more I hear the stories about creative people, like a lot of you in this room who are designers, I can't tell you, I think like blogs are such a powerful way for people to tell their own story about what they do. Because no one can tell your story better than you. I mean, certainly there are people who can help you craft it and help you like um, fill in the parts that you may not be so good at, like the grammar or you know when you're supposed to schedule your posts. But to really hear like the story of 
where the inspiration and the work and the sweat and the tears comes from to make something beautiful for someone to wear and is really important. I mean, one of the best things that um, my dear great friend, Azadine Alaya, used to say to me when he would finish a dress, he would give it to me and he would say, now you go give my dress a good career. <laughs> I, love I love that. And I think we all need to learn to respect fashion in that way. Uh, you, I loved what you wrote um, for Google Accelerate. Mm. Uh, if you have a chance, um, look up Veronica and what she wrote for Google Accelerate. I loved reading about um, your parents, and I, it really like touched me. But you, you mentioned Alaya, and I just have to. Um, I, I really um, was fascinated about the story you told me um, when you were walking down the street together. I don't want to give it away. Do you remember what you told me? Um about where fashion was going and what he said oh, to you? yeah, so this was Just like, to go back to the yeah, sustainability this like, thing. <laughs> this, was, this was 15 years ago, and we were walking down the street together in Paris, and we were walking by H&M, and there was like a huge two-story escalator, and he's like, look at that, Veronica. Look at that. That's, <laughs> look at how, th this, is, this is the future. This is how young people are dressing. You know, of course they want to look good, but they don't know how to sew, and they don't have any money, so, of course, this is what we're doing. That's what everyone wants to do. And he's like, you know, I would do a collaboration with them, but I just don't have the time. And then a few months, a few, actually 10 years later, we were in New York, fast forward, and we're at Nike Town getting sneakers because he always wore Nikes. Um, and, you know, the line is 60, 70 people deep, and he's like, oh, my God, look at this. You know, I can be in my store and maybe one person comes all day. You know, some days no one comes. And he's like, you know, if you're going to survive in fashion, you have to figure out how to do this. And he looked at me and said, but it's all plastic. Mm. Right. I want to go back to this idea of on demand, because mm -hmm. I think that that really fits in here. And I'm hoping you can explain it to everyone, because I think it's fascinating. So on demand is, an, uh, right now, is really still an idea. There are some things that are produced on demand, but what it means is you'll go on your computer or your phone, really, and you'll see something you want to buy. You'll buy it, and then it will be made. So we will be in a world where, hopefully, we will sell only what's been sold. And that will cut down on returns, on over-purchasing. I, I read recently there's actually a word, um, and I'm guilty of it. I've done it. I don't know what size I am, so I order multiple sizes. This is called bracketing. Um, so it will cut down on that. And, and quite frankly, I'm sure if we move to an on-demand model, you won't be able to return anymore, which I know everybody's like, oh, my God, can't return. But that would be an ideal scenario. And quite frankly, um, if we move towards that model, that's going to require the use of robotic sewing, which just this year, um, pieces of, te of technology have been invented to allow uh, robotic hands to feel fabric. And that's one of the hardest parts of making clothing, is when you're sewing the fabric and how it feels. And um, the robotic hands couldn't feel the fabric before. So I think there's going to be an acceleration towards that. Um, but, but what's more important, I hope, is that the factories will come back to the US. Mm -hmm. 
and leave China uh, because that is a whole other issue into itself. One of the things about on-demand, and there's, there's a couple ways to do it. I think the, the biggest hand that we can all have in changing fashion for the better is, is consuming differently. Yeah. Because the only thing that you know, um, companies can really respond to is their consumer. Um, renting is great because um, there's less waste in renting. Um, I use Rent the Runway all the time. This is a dress from Rent the Runway. Circular it's, economy. So, the that? circular economy. Exactly. Um, there's um, another company called uh, 502 Official where everything is made on demand. Um, and you can return because there'll be someone else who's a four um, who, you know, bought a six accidentally. So it kind of works out. And then the other thing is everybody buy a tape measure. I mean, I'm sure everyone in this room has one. But if you measure yourself and then you look at the size chart, um, there's going to be less returning. And then finally, the thing that I really love about on demand is that if there is robotic sewing, that creates a victimless environment. So you don't have women and children around the world being exploited in order to make clothes so that we can look rich and fashionable. I mean, that's kind of really a really sick cycle. Um, and then finally, wait, I, I forgot. I had a final point. It was kind of good. Um, <laughs> It'll come to you. Oh, yeah. So um, my friend Amy Smilovic, who has the company Tibby, she's a designer at Tibby, she told me a really good rule of thumb to know whether or not you're buying something where slavery or victims were involved is you can't pay someone properly to make a pair of pants or a dress if that, if that pants or dress costs less than $20. That's a, that, I, I think that's, that's a great uh, uh, way to look at it and, and understand it because it's true. And back to the point here about low-cost labor. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, if you took away, I mentioned earlier I was going to go back to China, mm. uh, if you took away the shipping um, dollar for dollar, we can compete. Uh, what happened is um, China is there, there are three things that, that a lot of people are, are talking about, and if you want to understand where the problems are. Um, first, um, in order to do business uh, in China, uh, you have to be a partner with the government. Therefore, they're going to have your IP, your intellectual property, um, how you make your goods. Second of all, um, they're, they're, I believe, floating their currency, so they can compete uh, in terms of the shipping, meaning they're, they're going to peg the wand of the dollar for whatever uh, is convenient in order to cover the cost of the shipping. And if you took that away, then we can compete with China and make our clothing here again because the skilled labor uh, is equal, if not better. And it's a myth. That, that we've lost all of our good labor? Well, we're actually, I think, um, in many ways destroying our good labor because if there's not a demand for the labor, exactly. then people don't keep those skills up. And all over the Caribbean, I mean, like, people still sew. Uh, people are still growing up, like, watching a human being sitting in the living room making clothes. But, you know, the more we dump our cheap clothes into, um, you know... Landfills. 
Yeah, not, not even landfills, like even taking them to places like, you know, t taking them to places like Goodwill, they all end up in the third world where a tailor can no longer make a living, a dressmaker can no longer make a living because there's sort of really free cheap clothes everywhere. I would go as far to say as I really hope fast fashion goes away. Mm. I really do. I think if we can get back to um, what y we talked a lot about and, and you were really stressing about authenticity, mm. um, living in an authentic way. I I'm not suggesting we have to sew our own clothes, a uh, little house on the prairie situation <laughs> anymore, but um, yeah, just having less. Someone, someone said something to me that always stuck with me, and um, I say it a lot to our children. It's a long life, travel light. Mm -hmm. Having less will be really having more. It will be the new luxury. And do you think it's a little bit also about storytelling and marketing? You know, when talking about this sort of authentic, you know, bring up the authenticity, the accessibility, you know, is, is it, marketing seems to be a kind of key component in making this shift, and it seems to be a different type of marketing than maybe we're used to seeing in fashion in previous decades? Well, because I think that the message, you know, I think a lot of what is really successful is an unfiltered message. And so people like that the gatekeepers are gone. People like, you know, to know that um, this blogger or that influencer, you know, that's who has the same struggles as you do. You know, she's thin one day, she's fat one day, she's broke one day, she's got some money the next day. Um, Nobody taught her how to get anything together. She kind of had to figure it out on her own. That's very appealing. And then, you know, for someone like me who's been completely trained in the fashion system and has had access to every kind of talented individual who's taught me how to, you know, style, do hair, do makeup, uh, I think for people to hear directly from me what still works for me and what I've learned has worked over the last 35 years in the business, I think that's important too. And I think we also have to remember each and every one of us in this room, we live in the most aspirational zone, like zip code basically in the entire world. And everything we do, people imitate. And you know, you might not think that you being um, greener or more responsible makes an impact, but it makes a huge impact because we're so imitated. Movies, books, television, internet, everything. You know, people want to be like New Yorkers. So I think we, we each have the power to say, hey, I think, it's, I think it's more creative and I think it's the height of chic to be able to do more with less. Absolutely. And sort of shifting gears a little bit, but still in the vein is, I know that you both are big proponents of supporting women in the industry. You know, it's another sort of type of outreach and advice, and I was wondering if you could speak a bit about that. Well, I think that, I mean, one statistic that really always, always sticks out in my mind is that only 2% of venture capital is given to female-founded companies. Mm -hmm. So I'm always looking for um, a female founder symbol. We have it in New York, it's, it's an F. Um, and it was actually started by Rebecca Minkoff, who's a designer, um, who's based here in New York. Anytime a woman asks me a question about business, I try to answer it 
If I don't know the answer, I try to get her to another woman who can answer that question for her. Um, right now, I'm actually doing um, a bag collaboration with my friend Gigi Mall, who she was actually an FIT student when I met her 15 years ago and then went to work for Oscar de la Renta and was gonna be a stylist. I'm like, you're an incredibly talented designer. Be a designer. I know it's hard and lonely, but be a designer. So um, she's actually launched a really great sustainable company. Um, she only produces on demand so that she has no excess. Everything's numbered. Um, and we try to get together like at least once a month to exchange ideas. And it's kind of, you know, it feels kind of silly, you know, to just say, okay, let's sit down and exchange ideas. But so many things just come out over a cup of coffee that are so helpful. And I think everyone needs a, a mutual mentor. So I have mentors who are older than me, and I have my reverse mentors who are younger than me. So, you know, we, yeah. <laughs> we need, but I think as women also, we should remember to respect age, right? Because it's, it's much more exciting to think, oh yeah, you know, I'm gonna learn the new, and I'm gonna have, you know, a young girl tell me everything, but at the same time, you know, I, I want women who are in their 70s, 80s, who were successful and who are still doing it to tell me how to keep it going. You know, I was, um, I spent most of my career working with Ellie and uh, one of the things that I, I just took for granted, truthfully, was that I was working in a business that was full of women. And I felt so lucky uh, to have the opportunities that I had not just to, we have questions coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not, not just to have a mentor, um, but I, as Veronica said, uh, a reverse mentors. And you know, the fashion, fashion industry is full of young people and full of ideas. And it, you know, it's, it's exciting to see, um, to, you know, to see a new idea uh, that can be created. And I think that's what draws so many people to the business of fashion. And um, you know, along my career, one of my greatest um, joys really was mentoring young women and bringing them up um, through the company. And there's one in particular today that uh, runs a division. She started off as, as our assistant. And um, she actually couldn't be here today. She told me she was in Korea. And she runs a $100 million division now. And go Jennifer. And you know, it's just, it's amazing. Uh, and I know that I definitely could not have um, achieved what I did without a mentor. And so when you talk about um, women and in the workplace and, and how, you know, we can advance, uh, we need to, we really need to support each other and mentor each other. Well, please join me in thanking Veronica and Rory.